0: He'd gone from village to village. Many were separated by vast mountains and great peaks. The Zagros were formidable and frightening at times. Danger lurked at every corner. Wild beasts and terrible cliffs could result in tragedy. Yet lurking across the highlands were another danger, the Scythians, For decades, the Scythians had ruled over the peoples of the Zagros. The Scythians had devastated the region in a great conquest. The king of these lands, this man's father, had perished in the fighting, and the kingdom itself sundered into a thousand pieces. And now this man sought nothing else than to restore unity, restore honor, and restore his kingdom— And so he took each step forward to another town, to another village, to another settlement of his people. He spoke with elders and chiefs. He negotiated with clan leaders and great warriors. He needed an army, and he needed a kingdom to feed and nourish that army. Of course, he had to be careful. The Scythians were watching every move, surely. He only marched at night under the watchful eyes of a thousand stars. He would speak only in the midst of campfires and hearths. He made his deals carefully and kept his hands hidden from prying eyes. At first, his efforts were laughed at. Many had stopped believing in the dreams of a united kingdom. Many had faced tragedy after tragedy. Scythians and Assyrians menaced the land. How could one dream of a great future when the present was immediate and fraught with peril? But slowly the man began to witness a change. The people of the Zagros grew more energetic. They became inflamed with a passionate fire, a single chaotic but infectious desire. Single campfires grew into hundreds of war camps. A handful of clan elders had grown into a council. A ragtag band of warriors evolved into an army. Each village slowly bent the knee, lent their support, and sent soldiers to war. The man had eventually succeeded. Here in the lands of Media, beneath the stars and nestled by mountains, the people would arise once more. Syaxeres, son of Freortes, grandson of Deocés, reunited his people, and together, as a single force, they would drive out the Scythians once and for all. Their forces were ready, and media would be theirs again. And so one day, Syaxares sent forth messengers to his Scythian overlords. He had asked them to come, to participate in a great banquet. Such was an act. Part of his great deceit. The meals, he said, were something to die for. None of the Scythians had realized just how prophetic such a statement was. The die was cast, and media would break free from the Scythian yoke. And welcome back to the Nomads and Empires podcast, episode 21. We're back in action, and a lot of action we're to have. Last time, we traced the Scythians as they moved into the Caucasus. Through such movements, the Scythians had placed themselves at an interesting geographical position. They were now at the nexus point of many Near Eastern powerhouses, The sudden introduction of a horse-born nomadic people would have many implications into the great power politics of such times. And indeed, it is this dynamic that we'll be examining on today's episode of the podcast. First, let's take a step back and consider the Scythians up to this point. We'd previously traced the Scythians to the Thai as independent population groups that migrated westward due to a whole spectrum of reasons, such as overpopulation and competition. Many entered Central Asia, the Pontic region, and eventually into the Caucasus. Throughout this time, the Scythians generally seemed to lack a centralized political structure. In the 9th and 8th centuries BCE, we have no indication of sizable Scythian states with a single powerful leader or a group of leaders at the helm. Rather, there may have been an array of Scythian groups vying for power and control, with such groups containing their own leaders and comitatus warbands. bands. That is to say, there probably wasn't a single Scythian kingdom, khanate, and so forth. As Scythian groups began to move south through the Caucasus, we start to see a political shift. With a base of operations in modern Azerbaijan, the Scythians here would interact with more centralized powers of the Near East, the Assyrians, the Lydians, and so forth. As these interactions continued through the late 8th and early 7th centuries BCE, Assyrian documents began to demonstrate a new phenomena, identifiable leaders. Assyrian records mention a man named Bartatua as leading the Scythians in the early 600s BCE. This is important. Though the Scythians of the Caucasus were still probably disunited, a single individual represented enough Scythians to warrant official recognition by other states. A similar phenomenon can be seen with the Cimmerians as well. Around the same time, we start to get names of leaders like Tushpa and Tugdame. Though the Khmerians and Scythians likely remained quite divided, and I could imagine there being a number of rival warlords in the area, enough had coalesced laced together into a critical mass, one that would allow other polities to engage with it diplomatically. It may be puzzling as to why this level of organization emerged. Scythian groups appear highly mobile and independent in the centuries prior. Why now, then, were these groups starting to gather around a single leader into a single polity? According to the political scientists Ivar Newman and Einar Wigan, these developments may have occurred in reaction to the presence of powerful sedentary societies. Citing another scholar named Thomas Barfield, Newman and Wigan argued that the Scythians had to, quote, aggregate to a level where they may raid and trade effectively unquote. in this view and it is a view that i find quite interesting the scythians and cimmerians needed to centralize their governance to some degree as independent war bands near eastern armies would have had an easy time in disrupting the nomads Scythian and Cimmerian raids would have been marred by major logistical issues, and disunity could be exploited, and rival warlords could be used to fight one another. However, by organizing themselves under strong leaders, these issues could be mitigated. As we hinted at before, the emergence of strong leaders could also benefit sedentary societies as well. Conducting diplomacy with an array of competing groups could be useful, yes. However, it means that you can't really fully rid yourself of problems like raids and shifting alliances. More rulers meant more chaos, simple as that. But with a single leader at the helm of a steppe polity, one can engage with diplomacy knowing full well that agreements with that leader could, for the most part, translate into the entire nomadic polity. This development, if somewhat functionalist in nature, can help explain why the Scythians and Cimmerians accepted the leadership of figures like Bartatua and Tushpa. This understanding can also contextualize why the Scythians would suddenly shift their foreign policy and begin diplomatic relationships with the Scythians. And so, around the 670s BCE, the Assyrian king Esarhaddon would conclude a marriage alliance with the Scythian leader Bartatua. Such a relationship would allow the Assyrians some respite from Scythian raids and incursions. In fact, at the time, the Scythians appeared to have been providing support to an anti-Assyrian faction around 672 BCE. Such an incident may refer to a great coalition that consisted of Menaeans, Cimmerians, and the Medes. Removing one possible member of this coalition would alleviate significant pressure on Assyria. Furthermore, the Scythians could be used to deter Cimmerian raids, as we should remember, the Cimmerians were quite active on the Assyrian northern frontier at this time. The Scythians, meanwhile, would gain a military alliance and the opportunity to attack and plunder Assyria's enemies, such as the Medes and the Orations. The nature of this alliance meant that Bartatua would act as a vassal to the Assyrian empire. Like other vassals, we can infer that Bartatua would have sworn an oath of allegiance and the Scythians could be called on in times of war. Such a marriage alliance may be reminiscent of a practice seen in Imperial China, the Heqing Treaty System. This system, developed around 198 BCE, consisted of Chinese emperors marrying off Imperial women to Xiangnu leaders. Through this marriage agreement, Xiongnu leaders would gain tribute and prestige via tie to the Chinese imperial family. Conversely, the Chinese empire would be able to push the Xiongnu closer into the imperial orbit. Though this policy attempted to stem Xiongnu activity, in reality, Xiongnu raids would continue to occur throughout the years. Though we can pull some parallels here, we should remember to contextualize this Sitho-Assyrian marriage alliance within a near eastern context. Whereas Han-Zhiongnu relations could be seen as a sort of balancing act, the Assyrians can be quite demanding of their vassals. Documents detailing Esarhaddon's relationship with the city-state of Tyre is a good example. The city of Tyre was expected to maintain trading relations with the Assyrians was expected to send skilled individuals to Nineveh, and was expected to maintain utmost loyalty to the Assyrian king. When Tyre reneged on its vassal agreement and instead allied with the Egyptian pharaoh Taharqa, Esser placed the city under siege. The Scythians probably operated within a similar framework. The Assyrians had been campaigning against the Egyptians for some time, and other enemies rested along the Assyrian frontier, and so a martially inclined ally was important. Furthermore, the Assyrians lacked a consistent supply of horses. The Scythians seemed quite well positioned to accomplish both functions. As skilled horsemen, the Scythians could patrol Assyria's frontiers, act as auxiliary cavalry, and play their role as a powerful military ally. As for horses, the rich fertile grazing lands of Azerbaijan, could create surpluses of animals that could then be traded to the Assyrians. We certainly know that Assyrian goods would flow through the Scythian-held Caucasus. Of course, to throw a wrench in all of this, we aren't completely certain if the Scythians did actually trade their animals. Research by Barry Cunliffe indicates that the Scythians may have actually procured Assyrian horses rather than the inverse. But with their new allies in tow, the Assyrians were able to pursue a dynamic foreign policy and the Scythians would be used to great effect. The ascension of Ashurbanipal in 668 was shortly followed by military campaigns against the Egyptians. By 663, The Assyrians were successful in ousting the Egyptians from the Levant, which was now firmly under Assyrian hegemony. We don't have any evidence for this, but I'd suspect that the Assyrians may have used some Scythians in this campaign, whether they be auxiliary contingents or mercenaries. With Assyria's southwestern flank secure, Ashurbanipal turned his attention to Anatolia. There, a number of states sought relations with Assyria. One of the chief reasons for this was because of our old friends, the Khmerians, who at the time were becoming a major power in western Anatolia. As we discussed in episode 11, Khmerian movements in Anatolia resulted in drastic measures by Anatolian states. The Kingdom of Lydia would be one of the most prominent examples under the reign of Gyges, the Lydians actually sent messengers to the Assyrians, seeking an alliance to defeat the Cimmerians. As recounted by Ashurbanipal himself, quote, king of Lydia, a district of the other side of the sea, a distant place, whose name, the kings my fathers had not heard, Asher, the god my creator, caused to see me in a dream. Lay hold of the feet of Ashurbanipal, king of Assyria, and conquer thy foes by calling upon his name. On the day that Giygas beheld this vision, he dispatched his messenger to bring greetings to me. An account of this vision, which he beheld, he sent to me by the hand of his messenger and made it known to me. From the day that he had laid hold of my royal feet, he overcame, by the help of Asher and Ishtar, the gods, my lord. The Cimmerians, who had been harassing the people of his land, who had not feared my fathers, nor had laid hold even of my royal feet. Unquote. Although this period of time would have scant details on Scythian movements, the 650s would experience an explosion of activity. One of the first states to feel the full brunt of this Assyro Scythian alliance would be the Assyrians' longtime enemy, the Orations. One chapter of the Cambridge Ancient History notes that in 657, the Oratians attacked the land of Abumu, a territory recently acquired by Ashurbanipal. A later chapter notes that the Scythians then invaded Urartu and subjugated the land. Through this invasion, the Scythians would gain significant influence over Urartu for quite some time. Though Ashurbanipal was finding success internationally, Domestic challenges were rearing their heads. Within a few years afterwards, the powder keg would explode and Assyria would face threats from within and across the world. Such an incident would have major implications on the Scythians. To really set the stage, let's take a closer look at Assyria in this time. For a long period, the Assyrians maintained control over the lands of Babylon. For several decades, tensions between the Assyrians and the Babylonians were mounting. At his deathbed, the Assyrian king Esarhaddon had declared that his two sons would receive their own lands to rule. This, as we may know, is always a smart decision to maintain the unity of any polity. Ashurbanipal was given Assyria, while his brother Shamash Shuma Ukin would rule Babylon as a vassal. Though the two brothers appeared to have maintained friendly relations initially, things broke down quite quickly. Apparently, Ashurbanipal may have stymied his brother's political control over Babylon, a very smart decision. In fact, the Cambridge ancient history offers a rather eloquent point describing the situation. Quote, the fact that the two brothers wore the crowns of two lands which were ancient rivals was sufficient enough reason for jealousy and hostility to erupt. Unquote. An Elamite attack in 653 may have been the opening move of this brewing conflict, though scholars evidently debate this. What we do know is that in 652, all hell broke loose. Shamash Shuma Ukin declared open revolt against the Assyrians and sought nothing more than an independent Babylon. Soon, the rebel king of Babylon called many of his allies to war, the Elamites, the Aramaeans, and a number of Arab factions. Backed into a corner, Ashurbanipal vowed vengeance. As one inscription by the Assyrian monarch tells us, At the time, one of my seers laid down at night and saw a vision. Upon the surface of the moon was written, To those who plot evil against Ashurbanipal and instigate hostility, I will apportion an evil death. Through the swift thrust of an iron dagger, through the conflagration of fire, through famine and outbreak of the plague, I will bring their lives to an end. And as the fire of revolt and war flared in Assyria and Babylon, movements across the ancient Near East further complicated the situation. The Cimmerians remained heavily active in this period of time. In 652, though some sources do say 657, the Chimerians launched a devastating attack on the Lydians. Political disagreements had severed the Lydian-Assyrian alliance, and the Assyrians offered no assistance to the beleaguered Lydians. With Assyria facing civil war at the time, it's not like they could have done much anyway. And so, much of Lydia was looted and burned, though the kingdom would inch along miraculously. Even more would happen between 653 and 652. According to some sources, the Medes launched an invasion of Assyria in this period. Shortly before, the Medes had succeeded in subjugating the Persians. The Median king Freortes then turned his attention to the Assyrians. Herodotus notes that quote, these Assyrians had formerly ruled all of Asia, but now are quite isolated, all their allies having dropped away from them. This passage is curious and may indicate that the Medes invaded during the revolt of Shamash Shuma Ukin. Should this be the case, the Medes would have had a sizable advantage against the Assyrians. However, Freortes would lose his life in battle, and the war would pass down to his son and heir, Syaxares. Syaxares managed to rally his forces despite such a tragedy, and he even put the Assyrian capital of Nineveh under siege. If we assume this sequence of events is accurate, then the Assyrians were placed in a tumultuous position. Enemies internally and abroad were trying to corner Ashurbanipal and even the most central parts of his territory were being threatened. Then came the Scythians. Several sources indicate that the Assyrians called for their Scythian allies. Herodotus reports that the Scythians had invaded Media through the north, while the Assyrians may have launched a counter-offensive via the south. The Medes were therefore pressed on two flanks and fell due to this pressure. We are led to believe that the Scythians then ravaged the lands of Media and incorporated this territory into their growing kingdom. By this point in time, the Scythians were the quote-unquote masters of all of Asia. Thus, for several scholars, including those writing for the Cambridge Ancient History, the year 652 marks the beginning of this 28-year reign over the ancient Near East. Though nominally Assyrian vassals, it's clear that this invasion and Shamash Shuma-Ukin's civil war had devastated the Assyrian hegemony. Not too long after the conquest of Media, the Scythians, under their king Mattius, turned their attention to the Levant and Egypt. We are told that the Scythians rode into Syria and Palestine and destroyed the Temple of Aphrodite in the city of Ascalon. The Scythian incursion was evidently threatening to the Egyptians, and the pharaoh Semeticus offered tribute to the Scythians on the condition that they end their raids. Scythian attacks in general appear to have had a significant impact on the region. Echoes of this period can be found in biblical stories. As the Scythians rode south through Palestine, many ancient Israelites became increasingly frightened and alarmed. The prophet Jeremiah is believed to have uttered the following lines in reference to the Scythians and Cimmerians, Thus saith the Lord, Behold, the people cometh from the north country. They lay hold on bow and spear. They are cruel and have no compassion. Their voice is like the roaring of the sea, and they ride upon horses. Go not forth into the field, nor walk by the way, for there is the sword of the enemy, and terror on every side. Evidently, these nomadic peoples of the north, whether Scythian or Cimmerian, may have seemed like a punishment from God. This experience may be encapsulated by Herodotus, who describes this period of Scythian domination as such, For twenty-eight years, then, the Scythians were masters of Asia, and all was wasted by their violence and pride, for apart from their exacting of tribute which they laid upon each man, they rode around and plundered whatsoever it was that anyone possessed." Unquote. Around this time, we know that the Scythians continued to play spoiler against the Cimmerians, the Cimmerians as we may remember from Episodes 11 and 12, had reached a zenith of their own around the 640s to the 630s, having scored major victories across Anatolia. In 635 or 625 BCE, the Cimmerians launched a major raid into Assyria. In response, the Assyrians called forth on the Scythians, and the two nomadic powers of the Near East met each other on the field of battle the Khmerians under Sandakshitra, and the Scythians under Mattius. As we noted in episode 12, we have scant details about this conflict, but we know one thing for sure. The Scythians utterly crushed the cimmerians to the point that some secondary sources claim that, quote, they disappeared from history, unquote. Of course, the irony here is that the Scythians would find themselves on the downslide not too long after. Momentous events in the late 630s and early 620s would herald the changing dynamics for the Scythians. Ashurbanipal, patron of the Scythians, would end his reign as king in around 631 or 627, Scholars have debated if Ashurbanipal abdicated or if he passed away, but such distinctions are irrelevant here. The key point is that Ashurbanipal would leave Assyria in a confused situation. The rebellion of Shamash Shuma-ukin in 652 had devastated the Assyrian state and resulted in a Pyrrhic victory for Ashurbanipal. The seeds for a Babylonian revival had been laid. Not too long after Ashurbanipal's death or abdication, the Assyrian state fell into civil war, and throughout the remainders of the 620s and 610s, the Assyrian state descended into chaos and devastation. Revolts and rebellions became commonplace. For the Scythians, the death of one leader and the emergence of another would lead to a chain of events that led to the ultimate defeat of the Scythians in the region. In around 625 BCE, the Medes, who had been solidly divided after decades of Scythian rule, were beginning to reunite once more. Several sources trace this development to a figure named Syaxeres, the son of the previous king Freortes. Saxares is quite reminiscent of his contemporary, the Lydian king Alyetes. The two would be faced by powerful nomadic states, and both would commit to crucial reforms to build up a military that could defeat such enemies. Saxares, for example, divided his army into regiments based on specializations, such as having units of archers or spearmen. In due time, Alietes and Syaxares would meet on the fields of battle with the fate of the Scythians and Cimmerians at center stage. Syaxares has been described as an energetic and powerful ruler. After unifying the Medians, he would take to the offensive against the Scythians. In 625 or 624, Syaxares was successful in ousting the Scythians from their land. Herodotus provides a fanciful and dramatic description of what happened. According to this narrative, Cyaxares invited the Scythians to a feast. In some sources, the king Matthias is said to have joined. There, quote, Cyaxares and his Medes massacred most of these Scythians after first entertaining them and making them drunk, and so the Medes recovered their empire and were again lords of those they ruled before, unquote. Although the Scythians were forced to abandon Media, they remained relevant in the wider region. As Assyria found itself collapsing from further civil war in the 610s, the Scythians made the tactical decision of changing sides. Babylonian records indicate that the Scythians became allies of the Medes and joined in an anti-Assyrian coalition. Should this be the case, then the Scythians would provide crucial assistance to the Medians during their most daring operations. Of course, not all Scythians switched sides unilaterally. Other bands of Scythians, perhaps mercenaries or those who remembered the Median Massacre, remained within the Assyrian camp and would be deployed against Assyria's enemies. In 614 or 613 BCE, the Medes launched an invasion of Assyria in the midst of the Assyrian civil war. Syaxeres, quote, attacked Nineveh and Kala Captured Tarbishu and destroyed Asher. In 612, the Medes and the Babylonians agreed to an alliance, and a coalition of Medians, Babylonians, and Scythians descended on Nineveh and destroyed the Assyrian capital. One tablet recounts the destruction that occurred. From the month of Simunu to the month of Abu, three times they battled. In the month of Abu, a great slaughter was made of people and nobles. On that day, Sin Shar Ishkun, a king of Assyria, fled from the city. Great quantities of spoil from the city, beyond counting, they carried off. The city they turned into a mound and ruin heap. Though a rump Assyrian state in Haran survived for some years after, it too would fall to the Medes and Babylonians. The Neo-Assyrian Empire had fully collapsed. In its wake, a resurgent Neo-Babylonian Empire and a powerful Median Empire would take center stage in the Near Eastern world. The Scythians would remain in the region for a little longer. Their assistance during the Median invasion of Assyria would earn them some goodwill, and Scythian warriors could be found in the Median court for at least another two decades. From here, the Scythians will play one final role in the ancient Near East as catalyst for a major war between the Medes and the Lydians. And then, the Scythians will be sent back to the Pontic Steppe. Or at least that's what the popular narratives espouse. I'm going to save the final epoch of Scythian involvement in this region for the next episode. Instead, I want to take some time to untangle this web of events we've discussed so far. I know that this episode may have been confusing. There were a lot of dates, names, and moments that may have flown past you. Part of the problem here is that the timeline of events is rather muddled. In reality, what I presented is one interpretation of this timeline. There are many other temporal constructions we can form as sources contradict or overlap one another. The relative lack of primary sources continues to obscure what may have actually occurred and when. And so I want to take some time to consider these issues. For instance, we can start by examining the reigns of the various rulers we've mentioned so far. There remains considerable confusion as to whether or not Syaxeres followed directly after his father Freortes, or if we can slot the Scythian period of domination between the two. One perspective would be to date the reign of Freortes as lasting from 675 to 653, and the reign of Syaxeres as falling from 653 to 585. Others would instead put Freortes from 675 to 653, a period of Scythian domination from 653 to 625, and Saxares as ruling from 625 to 585. Another possible configuration may be to include the reign of Saxares as being concurrent to the period of Scythian rule over Media. In this way, Saxares may have been a vassal of the Scythians for some time. Similar issues emerge with the Scythians, though this time the confusion comes from the dates of death. Some sources contend that Matthias passed away in 617 or 616 BCE. Such timing implies that Matthias had survived the Median uprising of 625. This actually stands in stark contrast to other sources that imply that Matthias had perished in that particular event. The confusion of reigns and dates ripples further into other events. The Scythian raids into Syria and Palestine are given two different periods of occurrences. The Cambridge Ancient History tells us that these events occurred during the reign of Mattias and are implied to be shortly after the Scythian conquest of Media in 653 or 652. In this case, the Assyrians may have acted as enforcers of Assyrian will by attacking anti-Assyrian settlements in the Levant. Barry Cunliffe, however, places these raids to the later end of the Assyrian Empire. In this framing, the Scythians attacked the Levant during Assyria's fragmentation. Therefore, Scythian warbands acted independently and took advantage of the power vacuum being left behind. In fact, dating these raids to the 620s raises their own problems. If the attacks occurred prior to 625, then we can consider this as the zenith of Scythian hegemony, being able to operate widely throughout the region with rather incredible logistics and coordination. If the attacks occurred after 625, then these raids may have occurred in reaction to the disintegration of the Scythian polity, with the central authority of Mattius gone, independent Scythian bands may have fanned out across the region and conducted their own actions. This particular framing could explain why Scythian war bands were found on both sides of the Assyrian-Median conflict of 614-612. I'm going to offer a point that may make some of you angry. It's possible that untangling this timeline isn't really worth it. The broad strokes are quite clear. We know that Scythian warbands migrated from the Caucasus into the Near East. Archaeological evidence supports this heavily. We know that Scythian warbands participated in numerous raids across the region, including in Anatolia, the Zagros, and Palestine. And we also know that some Scythians entered into a political agreement with the Assyrian Empire. Later down the line, other Scythians may have joined Assyria's enemies, either through their own agreements or as mercenaries. We don't need to overcomplicate the story that much. While having neat timelines can be helpful, they can also be rather confusing. The fourth volume of the Cambridge Ancient History makes a very interesting point regarding this. Some scholars don't even believe that the Scythians ruled Media for 28 years. Scholars now, however, more or less abandon the whole discussion. Unquote. Indeed, this volume makes the further point that Herodotus' narrative of Cyaxares may herald from older folk myths and epic legends. The exploits of Cyaxares in uniting his sundered people, the grand betrayal of his Scythian overseers, and the final conquest of his immortal enemy, the Assyrians. All that does seem more like a folk epic than a historical account, doesn't it? Even Professor Christopher Beckwith, who makes quite a few arguments that I disagree with in this particular context, notes that Syaxeres' actions fit a foundation myth structure. The challenge here emerges when we try to connect the work of Herodotus and these various legends with fragmentary records from Assyria and Babylon. I think two quotes from two different scholarly works can help frame the challenges we faced with this timeline, but also the things that we can take away. The first comes from Brill's Companion to Herodotus, which talks about Herodotus specifically, but can apply to many primary sources including those that we've examined today. Quote, "An air of authority, suggesting firsthand observation or informants of unimpeachable credentials is integral" to Herodotus' narrative style, but however determined we may be to uphold his basic good faith, we have to allow that he must have been uncertain about provenance and reliability of items of curious information accumulated over the years from hearsay and across language barriers. We cannot hope to trace the extent to which he himself tactically rationalized or exaggerated the improbable or supplied links between data which were in reality unconnected or connected in quite a different way. Unquote. And now the second quote from our good friend Barry Cunliffe focuses more directly on the Scythians. Quote, we have summarized the stories contained in Greek and Assyrian sources. At best, they are a fragmentary record of what must have been a complex interaction between incoming bands of predatory nomads and the sedentary states south of the Caucasus over a period of a century or more. There is no need to dismiss any of this, but in all probability, the flow of nomad horsemen from the steppes started earlier than the text would allow, and it certainly would have been a lot more complex. Unquote. And with that, we now reach the end of this episode. Today, we tried our best to trace the Scythian experience in the ancient Near East. Here, the Scythians fought a number of wars with the Assyrians. They clashed with the Medes and the Cimmerians, they terrorized Syria and Palestine, and played an integral role in the final dissolution of the Assyrian Empire. Though the timeline is murky, we can be sure that the Scythians played an immense role in shaping the region and their influence would be felt centuries down the line. In a not-too-distant episode, a Persian king named Darius will confront the Scythians head-on. But first, we must examine the Scythians as they leave the ancient Near East. Our story today ended with the fall of Assyria in 612 BCE, but we do have a small epilogue to follow through. Next time, we explore the final days of Scythian involvement in the Middle East, and then we'll trace the narrative back north into the Pontic Steppe. Thanks again for your patience. I'm firmly back home again, and the episode should start to appear on a regular cadence once more. I know that this episode was a long one, but I hope you enjoyed it, and as always, you can reach out to me via Twitter or at my email, nomadsandempires at gmail.com. And with that, See you all next time on the Windy Plains of the Pontic Steppe.